I have joined the political arena so that the powerful can no longer beat up on people who cannot defend themselves. This is a line from uh, the uh, Republican convention speech of Trump in 2016. And um, it's, uh, it was one of the uh, first examples that was uh, uh, displayed and, and showed where people talked about this is clearly a populist and other people who called him a demagogue. Um, and uh, those things are often conflated. And uh, with me today, I have someone who can help to clarify that a bit and also talk about her book, Demagoguery and Democracy. Uh, Patricia Roberts-Miller is uh, retired as a professor of rhetoric and writing, I believe, at uh, um, Uni University of Texas at Austin. And she has also written uh, several books that uh, deal with uh, how to have, I would say, useful conversations and democratic deliberation. One of the ones that I first, uh, one of her writings that I first got exposed to was Deliberate Conflict, Argument, Political Theory, in, in, and Composition Classes. Um, and uh, she's also written more recently uh, this uh, Demagoguery and Democracy, which I would say is a kind of self-help book to how to defend demo democracy against uh, demagoguery. Um, and is also uh, recently published, Speaking of Race, How to Have Anti-Racist Conversations That Bring Us Together. So thank you for joining us, uh, for joining me, uh, uh, Dr. Roberts-Miller. Thank you. It's, it's good to talk to you. I First of all, I just, can't, uh, just would like to say that I really, really enjoyed this book. Uh, it is an easy read. It's 129 pages, uh, but it's quite a small page format. Uh, and it's not difficult to understand. So this is something I think should be um, not uh, mandatory reading, but definitely something that a lot of people should uh, should look at. <laughs> it gives very helpful definitions and uh, a very, um, can I say, um, uh, a very sustainable way, if you want to take the environmental term, of uh, how to confront this demagogic moment, you could say, that we're having right now uh, throughout you know, not just in America, but in Europe, uh, there are a lot of just a lot of countries right now, a lot of liberal democracies that are kind of backsliding into more authoritarian forms, often led by these charismatic leaders, right? Yeah, yeah. Mm. Well, thank you. Yeah, it's it's strange times. <laughs> yes, uh, strange times. That's, a, that's also the name of a podcast that <laughs> I've been listening to a little bit sometimes. Uh, I think it was Obama that talked about this, that these uh, strange times that uh, have found us <laughs> right mm -hmm. now. And so many things that are happening are things that you just, we look to the past and we think, how could that possibly people have been following these people, right? We have uh, this, uh, I think looking back at the 1930s, right? We have, uh, you know, we have uh, Adolf Hitler, we have Mussolini, uh, but we also have uh, Horthy in uh, in uh, Hungary, uh, and uh, uh, obviously in Spain, the dictator there also, uh, Franco. And uh, it, it seemed like a moment where a lot of people were convinced that democracy was moribund. As it was uh, doomed to failure. It was doomed to die. Uh, even a lot of scientists agreed this was a form of government that had run its course, that uh, it had no vitality left and was uh, being... Um, losing left and right to these demagogues. Mm -hmm. 
And, yeah. And yeah, a lot of people believe that it was um, that that specifically the depression had shown that liberal democracy couldn't work, which meant that people were associating liberal democracy with a particular kind of capitalism, mm. um, which is not a necessary connection. Um, and also that, and so then they were saying we have to choose between fascism and Soviet socialism, um, and no, they didn't. <laughs> <laughs> But it, it was so in that moment, right? It, it seemed like there was this kind of either or, us versus them, these polarization, polarizing blocks, right? And that the, all the energy and the power was on those it, flying to the extremes, you could say, right? Yeah, and and um, um, and I think it's it's because people connect, as I said, connected a lot of things that didn't necessarily have to be connected, mm. like a particular form of liberal democracy almost libertarian democracy, um, a particular kind of capitalism, sort of free market capitalism uh, that opposed unionization. And um, uh, and so once once you start to see all sorts of things as necessarily connected, that that's almost certainly going to lead you into some some kind of binary um, decision making. But the, the sort of demagoguery of the time, what I find very interesting is demagoguery often seems to correlate to uh, the, uh, the height of a cultural demagoguery, not just demagogues, because demagog demagogues are always around. They're just jerks and they're always around. Right. But when you've got this culture of demagoguery, there's often a new medium. Um, and so in the 30s, you start to have a lot of radio. The radio, yeah. Um, yeah, and, um, but even prior to that, there were highly factional um, magazines and newspapers. I got really interested in demagoguery because I was actually writing about uh, the pro-slavery argument and, and what was fascinating and worrisome to me that I was writing about this in say 2003 or so was how much the public debate in America about the Iraq invasion reminded me of the debate about slavery. And specifically what reminded me is that you had all these people who were all these different newspapers, um, which had, which had mottos like above faction and free and fair and fair and balanced. And, and they were rapidly factional. <laughs> you know, there was a Whig one that was very different from the, you know. Um, and, so, um, and so people lived in these worlds where they really believed that certain things had happened that actually had not happened at all. Mm. That were just rumors promoted. And this, I saw the same thing happening about Iraq, that people would talk about, um, you know, not not just truthers about 9-11, but in addition, people who believed that there had been a Muslim attack on a shopping mall that never happened. Mm, right. So that, and, and that was what was so concerning to me is that you had these different realities. I mean, nowadays, right, the Bowling Green massacre people were talking about, right, the, right. <laughs> that never happened, yeah. or you right. know, the, the Pizza yeah. Gate and... Pizza Gate, yeah. All these other, th um, other things. Uh, I think... Yeah. Uh, I think one thing was uh, one that was very interesting to me was that everyone agreed at a certain point. There was an English uh, lady, was it, or a researcher that uh, went to the south yeah. uh, to find out uh, for um, uh, Harriet Martin. Harriet yeah. Martin. Yeah, she traveled to the region in the south, and everyone in the south agreed that the south had been flooded by this abolitionist abolitionist pamphlet. It it yeah. was just absolutely everywhere. And she couldn't find a single copy of it, and she couldn't yeah. find a single person who had read it. <laughs> but everyone, yeah. but everyone agreed that the South had been flooded by it, but nobody had actually seen it or heard it or seen anyone uh, seen any copies of it. 
Right. And in fact, it was um, every, so the American Abolition Society, uh, American Anti-Slavery Society had sent um, a bunch of pamphlets to Charleston and they were burned. So, and then they agreed that they wouldn't send any more. So it never happened, but you still see it in history books even because they talked about it in Congress, um, that this was why they needed a gag rule. It, it was just, it was a fact sort of that everybody with scare quotes that everybody believed because everybody believed it. And, <laughs> and this is where you talk about that, um, that a person then, then defends this notion that it's been, um, this is w William Gilmore Sims defends this notion that no, no, it, it's true that they flooded the South with this pamphlet, even though he hadn't seen any, any copies yeah. of it. Uh, and, but it, but because other people that are the first uh, citizens of our Republic, uh, the, yeah. the, the greatest uh, that have the highest stature have claimed this and obviously they need to be believed. Uh, and so this, uh, for Sims, the truth is determined by the identity of the people making the claims, and it's possible to dismiss any claim simply on the basis of who is making the argument. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, uh, and that, that's demagoguery. That's your your definition yeah. of demagoguery in some ways. That it it's not really anymore about arguing about an objective reality, but more a performance of loyalty to a right. certain in group. Yeah. And so if you criticize, if you disagree, then by definition, you're not loyal to the in-group. And so you're, you're, whatever you're saying can be dismissed on the grounds that you are, uh, that, that you're criticizing. <laughs> so it's, it, it just prevents any dissent or criticism. Yeah. And I mean, I'm wondering if, uh, to what extent this is, uh, I mean, it, it's, it's a natural human reaction to certain situation or right that you circle the wagons uh, that you talk even in, in football that uh, a club can develop a certain siege mentality yeah um, and have this uh, is what we say in Norway this kind of uh, inside the castle while we're defending ourselves we don't yeah. have any quarrels we don't have any fight right, right. Um, and so it's Perhaps not uh, not so much a question of whether or not this is an appropriate response to have in any situation, but rather is it misapplied to situations where it is not appropriate to circle the wagons, to have the yeah. siege mentality, to have the sense that um, now we don't have time for this. We can't uh, have normal arguments. We need to just survive. Yeah. Um, I it It's so much a tendency in human nature and probably was tremendously beneficial at some point in human history um, that that if we are attacked, we need to set aside all of our our disagreements with one another. It's so powerful for creating unification that people create the, a hobgoblin um, that is attacking us. So then that's how we can silence things. And it's it's one way to keep a coalition together. Um, is the is the whole common enemy and that was kenneth burke said that about hitler but i really i saw that in looking at segregation too and, and it's not just me i mean everybody who talks about segregation in the united states talks about how useful racism was for keeping poor whites from unionizing for instance mm. right or all sorts of things that would have enabled they could have made common cause with other poor people But um, but this common enemy of African Americans enabled 
uh, enabled groups to keep, to, as I said, prevent unionizing, prevent all sorts of um, demands for better labor conditions. So it's, it's tremendously useful. Um, and um, it even figures into a Woodhouse story in a really funny way where um, Jeeves solves some problem by making everybody hate Bertie. <laughs> <laughs> Right, uh, uh, when he was, uh, uh, when he had to, uh, I remember one at least, where he yeah. had to uh, take a bicycle through the pouring rain. Yeah, to, yeah. Right, yeah. <laughs> that's the one. Yeah. <laughs> that's the one. And right. suddenly everyone was unified because they all hated him because he had yeah, right. woken them up and locked them out in the rain. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's that's true. And uh, so, I it, what often strikes me, we had uh, this. Um, Uh, just to go a bit further on the tenant tendency, um, the use of it as an as a not sincere but use of it actually as as a strategy strategy mm-hmm. uh, to circle the wagons to to avoid dissent to gather and keep gathered a coalition. Um, I think it was at uh, CPAC uh, Ben Shapiro held a talk about. Um, where he denounced Trump himself um, and didn't like him, it was either 2016 or 2015, um, where he said, well, we essentially have two liberals fighting against each other here. <laughs> There, there's uh, Hillary Clinton. There's a lifelong Democrat who has uh, supported abortion that's going to be up against Hillary. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, yeah. But then he goes on to talk about how Uh, the right or the conservatism have lost their identity because we, defi- we defined ourselves as the opposite of communism and we don't have the Soviet Union anymore as the as the enemy. Uh, and how he, de- how he then lays out how we need to, or conservatism needs to now define itself as the struggle against leftism. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, because otherwise we'll lose our way and we'll lose our coalition um, and we'll lose our force as a group and and uh, then interestingly enough like uh, quotes uh, Saul Alinsky uh, and obviously becomes the you know and this is what you need to do never concede and all these things like that just very um, cynically uh, saying that look this is a this is a tool in order to gain political victory um, and but this is how we need to do it because otherwise we'll lose and that's the terrible thing you never lose <laughs> Yeah, Ben Shapiro, as usual, plagiarizing someone else. Um, I mean, that was uh, that was the argument Rush Limbaugh started making in the '90s, right? And, uh, and yeah, yeah, I was wondering about that actually with with plagiarism or not plagiarism. Sorry, that's another thing. But uh, demagoguery, where we talked about demagogues fostering other demagogues until it becomes a culture, right? Yeah, I thought about the uh, the give and take of Rush Limbaugh, Newt Gingrich. Trump, yeah. and obviously you have now the multiple mini Trumps, and you have the wannabe Trumps of Hawley and Cruz, and so on. Um, well, the entire Republican House Republicans, uh, most of them at least, that uh, voted against impeachment. Yeah. Um, well, the the as I said, I mean, I think that you always have demagogues around, but what is interesting is in a culture of demagoguery, there are a lot of them, and then people blame one. But if you look at something like segregation, who's the one demagogue? There's, there are tons of them, you know, there's Theodore Bilbo and um, he's, you know, famous, but George Wallace and um, so. Segregation and then one, now, segregation forever. Yeah, exactly. Right. And, and um, 
uh, and in terms of say the 30s with the uh, demagoguery about Jews, everyone from Charles Coughlin to Henry Ford, just so it works because so many people are saying it. And then you get a particular person who has charismatic leadership and which Trump had largely because of Celebrity Apprentice. Right. He looked decisive in that, in that show. And when people are frightened, and demo, the point of demagoguery is to frighten people. And when people are frightened, they like decisiveness. They want a decisive leader. And you get this whole tendency for people to think that we need to do something. Doing anything is better than doing nothing. And of course, doing anything is not necessarily better than doing nothing. <laughs> Right. Sometimes doing nothing is a great choice. I mean, um, the, what Kenneth Burke says that's one of the uh, the uh, virtues of democracy is its inefficiency, right? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, you just yeah, you can take some time and decide what what it is that you're going to do. Um, I, I still and al- also, as you said, it's it's only a good system if it works when the worst people are in it. Yeah, <laughs> or it helps to constrain their worst impulses. Um, and I think too that the um, uh, I, I was about to say, I think an absolute genius book on discourse and thinking uh, is Phantom Tollbooth, which is an old book. But there's a point when there's a, you know, someone who's chasing them around and getting them panicked and gets them to do all sorts of stupid stuff. And I, and I think that's kind of what happens with demagoguery. Also, what happens is when you have a group that is told you are entitled to everything that you have, in fact, you're entitled to much more than you have, um, and, uh, and yes, we're in power, but we deserve to be in power. And they start to lose ground. That's, that's a moment when demagoguery is, for that group is really, really attractive. And, um, sorry. And, uh, and so what I was going to say is that, so then that just like losing ground or needing to share with others or something, or just change, it becomes existential threat. Like we're going to, if we, if we lose any ground, we're going to die. Um, and our group will cease to exist. And, and so demagoguery often has that kind of form. And that's, and, and that's when you start to get, there's a war on us. Um, uh, and then because they have attacked us by asking us to change, we're justified in anything that we do to them. Right. And there's, uh, and that obviously a lot plays in there in America right now with, you know, white replacement uh, theory and uh, the, uh, um, certain you know uh, evangelical christians feeling that there may not be a ma- majority anymore mm-hmm. uh, i think it was uh, russell moore from the center of ethics by the from uh, that uh, he's an evangelical uh, leader and he was uh, talking one time i think on cnn uh, asking why it was that uh, in early days uh, you know, jeff flake mitt romney uh, the mormon church uh, came up with a statement against uh, the muslim ban um why it was that they they um were speaking up against this whereas the evangelicals seem to be cheering for it and mm-hmm. russell moore said well they've accepted that they're a minority minority culture whereas we still kind of think we're the majority yeah and they aren't they never have been and um, kind of the sense that this is the people consists yeah. of us kind of thing and the sense of that maybe slipping away uh, to a certain extent, uh, both the the racial and the uh, and the religious uh, pluralism coming in uh, may yeah, may, it, may you know be underpinnings that make these things attractive. Yeah, and the, and um, whites have always been threatened from the beginning of um, the United States, uh, and all that happened is people redefined white, 
because of course white used to be white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, um, and so the Irish and the were Jews white. were admitted and the Irish and yeah, the, yeah right Italians weren't white you know all this Poles weren't white Eastern Europeans weren't white right. Slavs weren't white so um, that you know that's that's kind of always been there and evangelicals have never been in fact a, min- a majority uh, religious commitment Protestantism was. Um, so, so often what you get with demagoguery that I find fascinating, it's kind of like the Harry Martin stuff. Like, did anyone ever see these pamphlets? Is it always appeals to a past that never happened. Mm. There's, there's a nostalgia for a time that didn't exist. Uh, and so, um, it, yeah. And, and, and sometimes when you listen to these people, they'll actually cite as evidence for how life used to be like TV shows from the fifties. Idealized versions, yeah, yeah. Um, it's so it's uh, or they'll or they'll say things and they and they mean this quite sincerely. When I was a kid, there wasn't adultery. Well, yeah, there was. You just didn't know about it, right? right. <laughs> you know. <laughs> so, um, so it's it, and I, and I just I as I said, I find that really interesting because it seems like that's a belief. When as soon as someone says we're losing our majority status, you know the numbers. You you were never evangelicals were never majority. Um, but but to uh, I mean that's where it shares, shares perhaps some also uh, things with uh, this kind of nationalism right it has to be this kind of mythic national identity that you know which conservatism in the U.S. hasn't had to that extent as you know the the blood and soil conservatism that you can ha- get in some European countries where you talk about ethnic identity and that we were here from the beginning and then the invaders came and usurped yeah. us and so on um, but. Yeah, surprisingly, though, there is uh, more blood and soil stuff going on in America now, too. Um, you know, Jews will not replace us, Charlottesville. Yeah. Um, but it, it's not been, um, I mean, a white identity has been a mainstay, but this kind of sense that we were always there and this always belonged to us in the same way, rather than that we were the superior race that took over from people less worthy. Right? Yeah. Um, it's, uh, it's really weird in the 19th century. And that's another thing that sort of puzzles me that you have a party that's, you know, the native party, um, and and that that native American didn't mean in the 19th century what it means now. Um, but there is, there is that sense of entitlement and, and that's the form that I think it's taken in the United States is the, the United States has much more of a tendency toward confusing, um, cultural history and eschatology. And so to, to see, to see that, that we're the true race because God intends for us to do certain things with our, with our national history. Um, And, um, but I, I think it's, it, in talking to people, especially in Texas about race, one of the things I find myself having to point out a, a ridiculous amount of time is um, they they tend to see what they consider Mexicans, which you know is everybody, every Latinx of any kind, um, as newcomers, and it'll be like mm, they weren't the newcomers. The Tejanos, <laughs> right? The yeah, yeah, yeah. You know that's that's not how it worked, um, and um, so so once again, there's this history that never happened of believing that somehow we were always here when it's not uncommon that the the person you're talking to had ancestors living in this land long before ours came over. Right. And uh, I guess the, isn't that the, uh, in some ways 
if you look at just like kind of a, a character of it, uh, progressives are looking forward, conservatives are looking backwards, right? When one conserves something, then we have to look back at something that was good, right? It's, it's, it's kind of a rhetorical uh, requirement that there was something looking back that we can look back towards that is, is good and worth preserving. Um, well, and that progressivism, that there is something better ahead of us or something that could be better ahead of us. Yeah, um, although I would say that we, there are very few conservatives in American politics these days. Mitt Romney yeah. might be one. Um, that their Evan McMullen, I would say, is another one. Uh, talks about yeah. like conservatism as conserv- the founding principles and so on. Well, and, and I, I would say he's actually reactionary. So what gets confused is conservatism and reactionaryism. Mm. And so um, the Republican Party is completely reactionary at this point. Um, and that's that has to go back. That's saying we've gone too far and we need to go back. Whereas conservatism can be we've gotten to exactly the right point. Right. And, mm-hmm. and we need to stay. We, we need to conserve what we Stabilize have. things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so at this point, I think actually a lot of Democrats are conservatives in that sense. Yeah. I thought it was very interesting how the, the uh, Biden and Clinton were both very much uh, in some ways, uh, you know, uh, it was a. Uh, Never Trump Republican though saying they're stealing all our stuff, you know <laughs> they're talking yeah. about God save God protect our troops uh, as uh, Biden does uh, the you know the uh, the sense of uh, all men are created equal all those things this yeah. all those appeals that some progressive Democrats in the past have been kind of scoffing at <laughs> yeah they were now using because they could use it whereas because Trump never didn't uh, embrace those values anymore yeah yeah. Yeah, and I think that third-way neoliberalism is um, is a fairly conservative, in the true sense of the word, conservative, uh, you know, set of agenda um, that you're going to move slowly. We're going to take these good things from that. There are good things in in all sorts of different philosophies, and we're going to bring them together. Is about conserving all that stuff, right. and um, perhaps a little bit of a pessimistic view of how much humans are able to change. Right, and which is always part of conservatism. I mean, right. conservatism is very pessimistic about human nature. And, um, and so I, I really think that there are ways in which, uh, oh, I can't believe I just blanked on his name. The nudge guy, Sunstein mm. is conservative. Right. He's very, you know, he, he could get along very well with like Niebuhr and stuff. Yeah, uh, definitely. I, I, yeah. Uh, perhaps I should get back a little bit to the book. I could talk here forever, but uh, oh, I'd love to have, <laughs> uh, just go a bit more through the book. Cause there are just some very, very good points here that I would like to point out. So what he was saying, Sims was saying that this argument can be discarded from Martineau. It can be discarded because she's showing disloyalty to the voices that should be believed. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, and uh, where you make the point later that demog- demog- demagoguery is about identity. It says that complicated policy issues can be reduced to a binary of us, good, versus them, bad. It says that good people recognize there's a bad situation and bad people don't. And therefore, to determine what policy agenda is best, it says we should think entirely in terms of who is like us and who isn't, right? And, yeah. uh, you know, Trump does that very, and his speechwriter, does that very cynically in the uh, 2016 Republican convention speech, mm-hmm. where he says, you know, the legacy of Clinton is death, terrorism, destruction, and only I can fix it. And he repeats that all, all over again. This will only change with a change of leadership. Only I can fix it. Only I can do it. Only I can fix it, right? Uh, that everything bad is there. 
And mm -hmm. as long as we change who's in charge, uh, these things disappear. Terrorism right. will disappear. <laughs> All these other things will disappear as long as right. we just get rid of that person that's somehow enabled or defended it. That, uh, yeah. And everything changes then, right? We're going to take our country back. Yeah, because the, the basic premise is that the world isn't complicated, that the correct course of action is obvious to to the right people. Um, so it's profoundly anti-democratic in that um, democracy is premised on the notion that people have genuinely different interests. And so we're going to have to compromise and we're going to have to uh, find solutions that aren't perfect for anybody. Um, and we're going to, and, and no single individual knows enough to know what the right course of action is. And so that's why we have to listen to people with, you know, different points of view. And, and a lot of people really don't like that. And, and they believe that the, that what they think is right is obviously right. And so you just need someone who'll cut through the bullshit. Right. And that's what, that's, what, that's how you get that decisive person believing that there's someone who's decisive will just do what we all know to be the right thing. And they'll, they'll just cut out all this, you know, paperwork and, and red tape and stuff. And, and that's very much what, what he appealed to, but it's also what Gingrich appealed to. It's also what Lim, that's Limbaugh's show. That's every one of his shows. Right. Um, and, or Glenn Beck or, you know, um, Laura, whoever. So it's, and, 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 and we're picking on the, on the right, but I see a ton of this. I mean, I, I hate the right left thing, but mm -hmm. yeah. I think that we should talk about a political spectrum. Right. Um, but you, you see it on all sorts of stuff. I see it on my neighborhood mailing list with people talking about bike lanes or something. And it's actually complicated, you know? Right. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to figure out how to have cars and pedestrians and cyclists all in the same area is, is not, you know, they're, nobody's going to be really happy with the solutions that we come up with. <laughs> it's so, yeah, yeah, it's going to be competing interests and no one size fits all. And right. uh, also means you need to get, learned on the issues themselves and that's complicated the world is complicated mm -hmm. right instead of just saying oh we'll just put the right per person in charge and they'll always do the right thing yeah right yeah. I, I was uh, wanting to pull up one thing actually this is from a uh, governor of utah right now just recently elected uh which i thought was interesting he put, put this up on december 19th after the stop the steel stuff had started um and he said and he says this, uh, I've spoken often about how politics has become religion for far too many people. Mm -hmm. But I'm equally worried that it is, it is becoming something else, sport. Yeah. Well, many are concerned that sports has become too political. I'm worried that politics has become too sporty. There are some obvious parallels between religion and sports fanaticism that uh, can and have been explored by me and others elsewhere. But politics as sport has a huge entertainment value and significantly different expectations for the players politicians, and fans, the voters. As ratings for all sports have declined, ratings and engagement in politics are, is skyrocketing. This new entertainment factor is very different than the way we have viewed politics as boring in the past. Pol political Twitter is lit, while sports Twitter is increasingly meh. <laughs> Don't get me wrong, as someone who's been, gaining, been pining for more people, especially youth, to get involved, increased engagement can be good. The problem is... When we forget that good politics is work and bad politics is show, good politics is broccoli and bad politics is cotton candy. <laughs> <laughs> That's really good. <laughs> actually, you make a similar. Uh, I, I reference that actually because you make a similar argument or case in your book about demagoguery. Like a little demagoguery can be good sometimes. <laughs> yeah, 
<laughs> but it's like eating chocolate all the time. Like as in, yeah. you, you shouldn't become enveloped in it, but yeah. that kind of way of, of uh, that kind of way of interacting, I guess, can some, sometimes be feel refreshing, entertaining. Yeah. There's a, there's a certain pull to it, right? Yeah. I remember it's funny because in the eighties, I, I remember um, talking to people about how I wish that we could talk about politics the way people talked about sport, because I felt at that point you could have a conversation with someone who would say, well, you know, this, this coach doesn't have a very good team, but they're building it and they, they need, they're going to need three or four years of, and, and, and engage in really fairly nuanced arguments about um, changes to rules and things. And and what I've actually seen is is sport talk radio is pretty similar to hate talk radio. You know, <laughs> it's um, so it's it's like they've both gotten uh, both those fields have gotten much more um, demagogic. And of course, one hypothesis is that uh, what the in satellite radio and um, and cable television have done is whereas you, you really had to be non-controversial in order to get a, a major audience when you had a limited number of outlets that now were competing for attention and um, outrage is, is much more effective. Right, the hottest so, takes and the, yeah. the most epic meltdowns and the... Yeah, and I, and I, I thought it was really... I, I feel as though I watched um, Jerry Falwell and um, Al Sharpton get created by the media in the 80s and 90s, because um, I, I can't remember if I mentioned that book or in the, in the other one, but I was living in um, in Northern California that had this black representative who was really, really good. And nobody asked him to comment on stuff. They'd instead ask Al Sharpton, who, who at that point was a, was a guy who had a fairly small following. Um, and the same thing with Jerry Falwell. But, the, um, but they would say outrageous things. Whereas, you know, my congressional rep would have said, well, it's complicated and here's this thing. If instead of going to Jerry Falwell, they'd gone to the head of the, you know, Presbyterian Church USA, which was much bigger than his, similarly, that person would have said, oh, it's complicated. And that's not going to get you viewers. Um, Sharpton gets more people because people like to hate him. Mm. Um, and, and, um, so racists are very comfortable with someone like Sharpton and they wouldn't be comfortable with, you know, somebody else who's going to be more reasonable. That's actually more disturbing to them. Mm. Um, right. So, you know, Shirley Chisholm is more, is far more disturbing to them than say Al Sharpton. And that's why he got more play. Yep. And uh, I mean, there's a whole thing here about, you know, the itching ears of the audience and the, mm -hmm reality television right uh right. who gets most in interesting is the one who wants to have the most outrageous behavior right um i, I can't really understand the appeal myself i have to say <laughs> but sometimes it's kind of like well uh maybe it's a comfort for some people that at least we're not like them yeah yeah <laughs> I think you, you, know, get, you look at people being stupid and it's become, you know, humor shows too and late night television. They have like all these like segments about asking 20 Americans on the street uh, who is the president or who is this and that. And they can answer, they can't answer the most basic questions about U.S. history. And it's entertaining. And it's like, oh my goodness. And we like dunk on them and, you know. Yeah. Oh my goodness. This country is going places that we're not, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it, it, um, uh, it's edutainment and or argutainment. Mm. Um, and 
there's a certain amount of schadenfreude in it. But there's also, which I never pronounced correctly, but um, there's also a certain amount of of envy, of wishing, of of looking at these people who are not held accountable for their behavior, mm. and and a kind of envy of of that. And I, and so you know, I crawl around dark corners of the internet and argue with strange people. And w- one thing I've noticed is that um, there are a lot of people who actually know and, and believe that Trump is corrupt, and um, and believe that he's uh, that he sexually assaulted women and they admire him for that because they wish they could do that. And they, they know that he's not, he actually wasn't a very good businessman and lost tons of money, but he still has all this stuff. And so they actually admire the bad behavior because they, they wish that they could live that way. Um, And I don't know what you do with somebody like that. I (laughs) I don't know how you persuade them. (laughs) Uh, Might is right. Right. Kind of thing that, that that's the, Yeah. And he can get away with it. That's the great thing, right? That's, uh, you know, that's, uh, yeah. I guess there's something American about that. Well, actually, there's a German <laughs> who writes about it really well, Mueller. Um, the, and the, the, the high level of indulgence in the culture, you know? The kind of, <laughs> Maybe, yeah, the, yeah. If you look at it culturally, uh, there, there's yeah. a certain... Uh, there's a certain admiration for these, like, big men that uh, do these outrageous things and they get away with them. Howard Hughes, yeah. you know, like those, the 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 ones, the myths of the tycoons in America, right? All done shady stuff, all kind of like questionable characters, but you know, Howard Hughes, yeah. the, the the movie with the DiCaprio, right? The kind of like, and then he gets away with it, and we make a movie about him. Yeah, yeah. Um, the uh, but uh, Jan Werner Mueller has a really good book. What is populism? Where he, I think he nails how corruption works uh, in populism, which is that that people admire it, um, mm. and you know as long as it's in group corruption, right? Then we got away with it. it. Yeah, and then they can identify it and they can sort of take the pleasure in um, in the corruption and the and and the bad behavior. Oh, and just destroying different democratic norms, just like. Hey, look what he's doing in the little liberal tears and stuff like that. Hey, yeah. what are you gonna do? What are you gonna do? Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Let's uh, again. Let's go back to the book. There's the uh, <laughs> tendency to talk as though identity politics is a new phenomenon, but there's always been people who want to reduce politics to identity. Um, and I'd say both on the left and the right and other places, uh, def- increasingly, right? That um, people all over the political spectrum will often insist that it's possible to accept or reject an argument purely on the basis of the person who makes it, which is often means whether an advocate is or a critic is liberal or conservative or whatever else they are. Um, and uh, what, you, what you make the case for is that it's the, in some ways, it's not the demagogue that destroys the democracy, but rather it's a demagogic culture that calls forth the demagogue that empowers yeah. the demagogue that uh to quote uh, the davy crockett movie uh these uh, <laughs> these folks are just about as reliable as uh to hang around as flies on cow poo right <laughs> cow poo uh that that they'll always come in they'll, they'll always be there um but um the question is whether or not we have a culture that lifts these people up that is demagogic that this where this has become a normal part of how we interact and what what people come to look for in a leader. Yeah. And in discourse generally, mm. the, um, 
and I'm lifting a lot of that from Plato's Gorgias. Um, the, the, I mean, so in the 18th century, you couldn't have the general public deliberate policies because it just, it was too hard. <laughs> you know, right. the, the technology wasn't there, right? So the, the way that the constitution was designed initially was identity politics, that, that you you voted, that only certain people voted because they, these are people with an identity the that makes them- gentry kind yeah. of thing, yeah. Yeah, that makes them good at deliberation. And, and they're supposed to be a, um, above, they're not gonna be beholden to anybody. They're wealthy enough that they don't have to be beholden to anyone. And so they can make an independent decision. And then they pick someone that they think has really good judgment. Um, and that person gets sent to the state legislature and then the state legislature picks someone. And so you have all this, you know, people just, it's, it's, so that's, it's completely identity politics. Mm. Um, and, um, and then, you know, very quickly, of course, we, we did end up with, with factions, with parties, um, which people hoped wouldn't happen, but the same people who hoped it wouldn't happen, like Hamilton or Adams formed parties. Right. <laughs> so that, that's, that's where that went. And then very quickly in the say Supreme Court, there was a sense about identity politics, about trying to appoint people who had certain kinds of identities. And that was a tradition Then it, the identities, you know, changed at a certain point. At a certain point, there was a sense that you needed um, the different Catholic, religious. Uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's, it's really projection on the part of, uh, of reactionaries to say that the, the left created identity politics. No, it's, it's always been around. And uh, uh, although there definitely was a, a case of uh, cases also been made that you know uh, to make group identity less salient is also should be a goal of, of uh, the left in America that that mm -hmm. becomes less of uh, defining for everything in politics and so on right that the that uh, that there should be something more than just all these scattered tribes working for their own benefit, that there should be something for us, right? This should be something that, that again, unites, right? Well, and that's the notion of intersectionality, that, right. that nobody has one identity. We all have a whole lot of identities. And, um, and so various identities can have shared goals or shared needs, but also that, um, you know, I, I love the metaphor of intersectionality, right? That you, I, I see it as sort of like all these Venn diagrams. It's become, it's become a devil term on the right side, <laughs> on the right. <laughs> yeah, I know because, because it's, it would destroy them. Right. Um, if people actually understood intersectionality and understood issues of race and class and sexuality and all that in, in intersectional terms, the, the right would lose its ability to, to say there is a single uniform entity opposed to us. Mm. And yet it's it the the right has been engaged in a sort of intersectionality without using that term for a long, long time. Um, so it's it's a it's a co I mean, parties are gonna be coalitions. They're always coalitions. Right. You're always looking to 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 gather people under a banner that will come from different different backgrounds. Just uh, Yeah, and you can have a, a coalition based on policy or you can have a coalition based on identity. And they've chosen a coalition based on non identity, a coalition based on not being liberals right right the the against mm -hmm. yeah, yeah and so there are different things that uh we know from de democratic deliberation we talk about these that there are some structural uh, uh things that need to be in place for democracy to work and then there are also some rhetorical things or there's some things about some norms and standards 
uh, about discourse. Uh, so we have um, structurally, you know, know that you need a usually a relatively strong middle class. Uh, mm-hmm. A lot of people have talked about, you know, with the AI revolution that that may destroy democracy because to have a democracy, you need to have a certain amount of people that feel that the system is working. Um, mm-hmm. And if it doesn't, then you know that that could destroy democracy. And that's uh, that. So that's a, a claim that you need to have a relatively strong middle class. Uh, you need to have a civilian-controlled military or civil civilly-controlled military and police, where instead of they be, them being able to make a coup whenever they don't like the polit- political leader, they have to respect the democratic process. Uh, you need to have a certain due process that applies mm-hmm. to everyone, um, to a certain extent at least. There's always some differences with power, of course. But uh, some private property, some private space, where for most cases the government will not interfere unless when they really the, when it's a huge public good at stake, um, and uh, where people get mad if political figures uh, appear to be untruthful or unfair. So there's mm-hmm. some kind of truth and accountability. Um, and uh, Alexei Navalny, the the, the uh, uh, opposition uh, candidate in uh, in uh, Russia, who's been jailed, he made that that came case also to the Russian people when that started these uh, massive uh, protests. Is that in rich countries? He didn't say democratic countries. He says in rich countries, <laughs> they uh, if the government lies and steals from them, people get upset and they they react to it. Whereas in poor countries, they just let it roll over them. Mm-hmm. Um, and that um, if people decide to see things as a zero-sum game, the more they succeed, the more we lose, uh, and we should rage about any call made against us and cheer any call made against them, them then democracy loses. Mm-hmm. So instead, it's kind of the idea that um, there's such a thing as truth, fairness, uh, and that those things need to be protected for their own right whether or not we gain on them in this particular instance. Yeah, I um, and I think perspective shifting is really important. I mean, I, I, I want to emphasize most of that list is from Robert Dahl. It's not like I was a genius that came up with this, but this is just what people have looked at is when have right. democracies lasted. Um, after I wrote that book, I, I read Why Nations Fail. And um, those authors are very neoliberal. Um, but even they come up with a pretty similar list not not they don't talk about all those various things in there but they but the the need for um social mobility mm-hmm. the the need for openness to change it's it's kind of it's interesting that, that people whose politics are as different from mine as as those are they still end up with something like that i also learned of something called vladimir's choice which is apparently a russian folktale of this guy this incredibly poor peasant named vladimir and god comes to him and says what um, I'll give you anything you want, just one thing. So what do you, you know, anything you want. So think about what you want, but I'll, I'm going to tell you, I'm also going to give whatever I give you, I'm going to give twice as much, twice that to Ivan, the guy over there that you hate. Um, and so Vladimir thinks about it for a while and then says, um, gouge my eye out. <laughs> oh dear. And, and what's really interesting is that in cultures of demagoguery, when you've got that us versus them, people make Vladimir's choice. And that's the argument of the book, Dying of Whiteness. Um, he argues that people are willing to put up with, they, they fought expansion of Medicare, which would have helped them tremendously because they thought it would go to non-whites. 
Right. And, okay. and as long as they felt it hurt non-whites more than it hurt them, they were willing to do it. Right. Because, yeah, mm-hmm. the welfare queen and so on. Yeah. Yeah. So the uh, uh, and then the, in addition to this kind of uh, structural architecture of a good democracy, uh, there is also the rhetorical architecture of a good mm-hmm. democracy that has you know obviously a different some things, but has uh, uh, some very kind of broad rules that you talk about here uh, of how ideally public debate should work, and that any kind of undermining of these things also. Uh, help to undermine the legitimacy or perceived le- legitimacy of a democracy and and the debate and the results of that debate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and it just talks about you talk about uh, inclusion and that uh, you should uh, include all people with relevant information that so the experts essentially um, the people with the variant perspectives so any kind of person that may see this a bit differently. Um, and as much as possible, the people who will be most affected, like stakeholders, we'd say, right? Um, and that exclusion should be very limited. Um, for example, if they uh, say we try to be accurate about points of view of other people, sometimes people have to be excluded from the conversation, particularly if they threaten violence mm-hmm. um, or if they're refusing to let people speak or refusing to follow the rules of discourse. Uh, right. I mean, they're just thinking about the peop- the representatives that want to bring gun on- guns onto the House floor, right? The, um, the idea that you can have a normal conversation with a person that's implicitly threatening violence against you, uh, it, it kind of destroys that space, right? Where, uh, was it the, uh, that, um, I think it's uh, uh, Perlman and uh, Albert Statitica, that talks about how that once you're debating, you have renounced violence at least as long as that debate lasts. Mm-hmm. That um, you are trying to get their adherence without referring to violence, and that you, <coughs> and so during that time, it's kind of a violence, not power free sp- space, but it's a violence free space in some sense of physical violence. Um, what do you feel about? Uh, I wanted to talk a little bit, actually, because um, you talk about in the, in the end of the book that it, it doesn't help to just kind of get rid of these people, mm-hmm. exclude them from the conversation altogether, um, uh, the ones that are demagogic, right? Yeah. Um, What's your, your take on the uh, Twitter and others banning Trump yeah. and Parler being taken down? Um, I'm going to back up and go back to guns because I'm mm-hmm. a Texan. Okay. Um, not by birth, but, but adoption. No, I, I lived there when I was studying for my PhD too. Was, oh, that's uh, right. I, I, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. Yeah. And and I actually don't think that, um, say, representatives having guns is the introduction of violence to it. If they pull it, it is. Hmm. But, you know, Sumner was beaten into unconsciousness on the floor and there weren't guns in that room. That's true, um, yeah. You know, so, uh, and, um, and, and considering that, I think also what people are tending to do is they're invoking a different kind of violence, right? So, uh, and, and that's the stuff to be concerned about, as you saw, say, happen in something like Gamergate. But I, I think that um, Twitter and um, Parler and, you know, I think those places, um, they're, they're banning these groups 
for legal reasons. Mm. And, and after the Christchurch incident, it became pretty clear that Facebook could get sued and was liable for allowing people to plan violence on their site and was not engaged in even the, mo- the barest of oversight on that kind of thing. But meanwhile, you couldn't show breastfeeding, um, you know, so, and, and allowed harassment of, of various kinds. Um, and, you know, Amazon for, for years, I was fighting on Amazon. I would periodically get on there and, and report people who are Holocaust deniers and, um, and promoting neo-Nazism and, um, and, and Amazon wasn't doing anything about it. Amazon recently did. They, they actually got a lot of people off and I think, and it was after the Christchurch thing. And I think, again, it was that they realized that, that, so it, for me that a private company would choose to do something like that, it, um, is not an interesting issue of first amendment or free speech because mm. it really is about legal liability. That's all it's about. Nobody was going to sue them over, over breastfeeding. Right. Sure. But, um, uh, and so that's, that's how, um, uh, you know, Stormfront got deplatformed, how and why, and why Gab and Parler have been picked up by, you know, Russians is that they, they see disruption of democracy as, as in their best interest. So, um, so ultimately, and what's very strange about, say, Parler is, um, I think it was Milo, I never can say his last name, Yanni Alas, mm-hmm. um, who went on there for a while, it might have been Gab, and then came back complaining that he was getting bullied. I mean, that discourse is bullying discourse. They need somebody to bully on there. Right. Um, and and so um, it's, I, I, you know, I, I don't know how long it's going to last. What is going to happen, though, and this is well documented, is when you get like-minded people together, um, and, and people are performing in group loyalty, uh, then you get more extreme. So they're, they're, they're radicalizing one another. Mm. And, and that's worrisome. Right. Cause I mean, it's not like, um, I haven't heard, uh, people talking about the, uh, the kind of fantasy of being able to completely eradicate this, you know, Trumpist or the ones who voted for Trump or so, or uh, reducing them to uh, social irrelevance and something we never have to worry about again, right? Just through using different kinds of state power or just, you know, people would just leave them in droves. Um, But there was a time when, I mean, um, I'm kind of fascinated by the weatherman and uh, and Weather Underground, you know, and, and and they were engaged in that sort of discourse. Um, so I think you can, you can find it in all sorts. So I was actually active in Usenet in the, in the eighties and, and, and you could see people who'd get into, you know, pro dog groups or something that just went nuts. You know, they just go. <laughs> so, so you can have amplification on just about anything. You can find yourself in certain, um, kill humans, cook- save the dogs. Yeah. 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 <laughs> You, you can find yourself in, and you know, on on some issue that would really polarize people. But you can find yourself in cooking groups where people will have snit fits about dessert hummus and whether that's actually a thing. So I, it's I think that we can find ourselves passionate about this stuff. It's just extremely unlikely that the people opposed to dessert hummus are going to hurt anybody over that issue. Uh, and and I don't think there's going to be a war on hummus right. rhetoric. Right. Um, but. 
And so there's this, yeah. the uh, so there's the, uh, the the idea of kind of inclusion, obviously, and that implies also the kind of the freedom of speech issues to a certain extent, right? Mm-hmm. That to what extent um, should we police the public sphere, and to what extent should it be open? Uh, as some people have called the marketplace of ideas or so on, right? Uh, but the, you know, uh, whether or not that's an apt metaphor. But um, and then uh, and then there's the principle of fairness. Um, in some ways, that certain consistency, right? That, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, sure, okay. We can uh, we can uh, have that kind of conversation, but then we're going to do that that way. And that's that's the kind of, oh, and the same rules of logic appeal to, apply to you as they as apply to me. Right. right. The um, and uh, we talked about the rhetorical theory as an antidote to demagoguery, which I think is very interesting. Uh, that um, and what <clears throat> arguments about how we should argue most interfere with the demagoguery, and especially if those arguments concern whether the rules are being applied to all participants equally, and uh, that that can help to somehow diffuse the power of demagoguery. Yeah. And again, I want to go back a little bit because I should have said this a while ago. So for me, inclusion has to be deliberate inclusion. And it's almost um, that people need to try to seek out the smartest versions of opposition arguments. Right. The the Steelman versus the Strawman kind of thing. Yeah. And that's not our impulse. Our impulse is to feel secure about ourselves by by finding dumb versions. And and that, that brings about closure. And I, I think one problem that we have is that so many people are really get angry in conditions of uncertainty. And I think that, that our educational systems should, should serve to make people comfortable with uncertainty and to, and to see uncertainty as a question of degrees also. Being uncertain doesn't mean clueless. Mm. And, and that we can, we can think about what are the conditions under which, you know, are, are we going to get more information about this or not? Are we going to have to make a decision right now in the midst of uncertainty? Um, but we can try to, we can try to find out what uh, information from opposition. And it's interesting to me how often when I've, within my more or less lefty um, informational sphere and a position is getting characterized a certain way, and when I really look into it and try to find defenders of that position, it's it, it's actually a smarter position than people are. I still disagree with it, but it's mm. much smarter than 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 people say. And it's not as as um, there's not as much bad intent. We always attribute bad motives to our opposition, and it really is a question of their valuing certain kinds of things and information. So, I think that that inclusion is not just a structural; it's also a motivational inclusion that needs to happen. And it's easy in certain ways. On the other hand, it's expensive. And that's something that concerns me. That that um, the there are certain groups like Heritage and Cato um, that have the money to have all this these studies and stuff out there for free. But if you're interested in an issue of global warming, it's going to be really hard to get the studies that you need to look at without a library, without access to a university library. Mm. And, and so I think actually democracy really depends on open access. In the New York Times and Washington Post and Wall Street Journal, I read them all. They're expensive. Mm. The Economist is expensive. <laughs> um, you know, I, I, I feel like I need to know what neoliberals think, and the Economist is going to tell me that, but it's going to cost. Mm. Um, and and so that's you know that's a sort of problem that we have. As far as the thing about the about rhetorical theory. Um, uh, 
we so much have the compliance gaining model, uh, which, which Wayne Booth called the salesman stance. Mm, right. And you mentioned the marketplace of ideas as, as being a problematic metaphor. And it's because I'm going to try to sell this and you're going to try to sell that. Um, and we're going to see that that's all we need to do. And of course, if I'm selling a product, I'm not going to tell you that the, my car sucks. <laughs> that's not, I'm not going to do that. Right. <laughs> trying to sell you the car. Right, I heard, um, I heard a joke. Uh, when one door, when one door closes, another door opens, but other than that, it was a good car. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, the, is it, and so we've got these kind of models. The other thing that's really interesting, of course, is is um, public discourse as as football, mm-hmm. and, and and you don't have if somebody thinks that they can get away with claiming a foul happened, they're going to fall to the ground and grab their knee, and they're not going to be like, actually, it was okay. He, he, he didn't. Really. <laughs> so right. and and it, can you imagine, you know, like if a player did say, no, no, no he didn't foul me. It's all right. Um, fans would go nuts. So that's a bad model for, for public discourse. It's <laughs> <laughs> a very bad model. It's a winner-take-all um, mentality. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I think the marketplace of ideas, especially now that we're in a kind of capitalism that emphasizes monopoly capitalism, um, it's, not, it's not a great model. Mm. Right. Whether it ever was, I don't know, but it certainly isn't now. And so the, the, uh, the kind of fairness idea is that you try to find the best best versions of the argument that you're opposing, right? And that, yeah. uh, and another part for there, I, again, I agree that uh, it, it, these arguments need to be made available and more, more readily available. Um, mm-hmm. Otherwise, you go to the bad sites because who's going to pay for a blog, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 And, and, um, and I think fairness requires perspective shifting, right? And because it, it imagines that moment of how would I feel if they, if somebody treated me this way? Mm-hmm. And, and that's why that aspect of demagoguery is so toxic. It tells people not to engage in fairness because the other side is so evil that you shouldn't look at, you shouldn't look at it from that perspective because that's the perspective of the devil. Mm. Um, and, and that's also why um, there are, I think, a book called Network Propaganda and another book called Irony and Outrage talk about the research that shows that a lot of these um, programs spend more, like Fox News, say, or Rachel Maddow, spend more time talking about how terrible the other side is than they spend, they spend very little talking about what's good about their policies. Right. And, and they spend a huge amount of time telling you what the other side's arguments are, and they aren't. And so you have all these people who believe that they are fully informed as to what the other side believes, and they're not. And that, I guess that's uh, perhaps a, uh, could you say a kind of perhaps a weather vane of the, or, or canary uh, in the coal mine kind of thing of when you have a demagogic uh, culture, that you will have a lot of people explaining to you what the people you oppose really think yeah without actually doing it like those explainers there we have you know i had an example with um there's a there's a certain uh, theologian not a whole lot of background he writes three books about different uh denominations every year and why they're wrong yeah and if a follower of his was like well why should i learn about myself when i can get this guy who's so well versed on the topic. Yeah. He writes three yeah. books a year. How do you want to <laughs> He goes to like the cheapest and the fastest way of essentially debunking their denomination. Um, yeah. 
And if that's all you want, right? That's all you want. But but still, it, that there's a difference between claiming that and the claiming to become actually informed about these issues. I, I ended up with an argument in an argument with somebody about that who might have been citing this guy, and he was saying, "No, this is really great information um, because he has a lot of footnotes." <laughs> Just so very basic, yeah. Yeah, and and but you know, if you look at the footnotes, they they don't make any sense, and they're footnote, they're self footnote footnoting and all that sort of thing. Um, but that, but you know, David Duke's autobiography has some like a thousand footnotes, and and people when 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 uh, Amazon allowed reviewers on, they would talk. Reviewers would talk about that and say that's what's so wonderful about um, it. This is thoroughly researched, and it's got all these footnotes, and the footnotes would say things like you know the Jews are doing this, and then the footnote would be Old Testament. <laughs> so yeah um so this the I, I think a lot of times demagogues are or people engaged in demagoguery and promoting demagoguery are really good at looking scholarly and and that's why i think that that populist versus scholarly or expert versus you know just doesn't it doesn't work um the the testimony say before the um congress for the 1924 <clears throat> Immigration Act, which I always want to call the Anti-Immigration Act, mm -hmm. was you know was it was experts. It was someone with a PhD um, uh, who ran this you know whole institute, but he was just wrong, and it was complete demagoguery uh, with numbers. But you can do demagoguery with numbers. I mean, eugenic society, you know. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. that was good science, right? It used to be. Um, the the uh, one just one point I want to talk about there also is the a lot of what uh, passes for these like uh, these shows uh, on the right and the left um, and in between is very often these they are um, focused almost entirely on nut picking. Yeah. Right. You know, you take the 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 weirdest uh, college professor or like the weirdest. Yeah. Uh, radical Christian or their weirdest, uh, you know, this or that, and just explain their story. And you don't even have to do anything else than just give focus to it. Uh, yeah. But already people have, um, already people have an idea that this is what I'm opposed to. This is what this yeah. group is, and I need to be scared of it. Right? You'd be surprised how many, uh, how popular shows in Europe are about how crazy America is. Oh yeah, I know. <laughs> and you know exactly where they'll go to, too, right? You know exactly which yeah. groups they'll focus on, etc. Right. And so on. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. I'm, I'm, yeah. You know what it's like to be in Texas. That's what everyone says about Texans. <laughs> I was surprised yeah. how many people were normal. <laughs> I thought it was oil, George Bush, and cowboys. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah. Um, so there was a point in time when I had on um, a, a social media platform. I won't. I won't name it. But I had multiple identities. And, um, you know, so one was, you know, wildly left, um, one was sort of centrist, and one was very, very uh, pro-GOP. Mm -hmm. And what I thought was really interesting about it was how different things looked. So, for instance, on the pro-GOP thing, if there was the, the, any Democrat did anything bad, it was on there. And there was never anything about Republicans. And so these would be often minor officials or state representatives or something who had really done terrible things. Mm -hmm. The um, And so if you, if, if that was your feed, then you would believe that Democrats are just evil, that all of them from the assistant to the assistant postmaster in a small town up to, you know, and, and you, you only heard about terrible things that, that, may or may not have actually done 
and that but then you know on the on far left it was exact actually often it was the same thing they, they both had pizzagate the far left and the um and the pro oh, interesting. trump one mm. yeah yeah they um the that far left one had all the all the anti-clinton stuff the same stuff um but it it didn't have the like you know assistant from, to the both, assistant. they were both from russia <laughs> probably yeah um and um uh, I'll tell you one more interesting thing about that, but anyway, and then, but I thought that that was really interesting. And then even mine, which was sort of, you know, try to be somewhat centrist. I never heard about these things that Democrats had done, but it was full of things that Republicans had done. Mm. So you would really feel like your assessment was objective, like it had lots of data behind it. Um, the other thing that was really interesting about the, uh, about, you know, the sort of Pizzagate stuff, um, uh, is that in both the, the super, the, you know, pro GOP one, pro Trump ones, and then the, the other one, if the link would say something like, you know, Clinton is strangling kittens and you'd click on the link and it would just be for herbal Viagra. Um, or because of the work I do, my, my, um, computer is basically wrapped in saran wrap, you know, it's got tons of virus protection stuff on it. Mm-hmm. And my computer would just say, you're not going there. No, <laughs> you're not touching that site. <laughs> Or you'd go and the headline would be, you know, Clinton strangled kittens. And that's not, that's not what the article was about. Mm-hmm. So what that what was, and people were sharing these. So clearly these people, and they were real people who were sharing them. So, so it's what a lot of people say. People share links they haven't read on the basis of, um, you know, just liking what that headline says. Uh, and I thought that was, so I wasn't the least bit surprised when people started talking about fake news. I mean, even, even like uh, this, I had this uh, person I was debating with, and he talked about there were prayer rugs found on the southern border. Yep. And I was like, uh, no, there were some, even the Breitbart article itself said, like, you know, the prayer rugs found on the southern border. Uh, Muslims are invading our country. But it really was like, okay, there was a rug that was put over a, uh, a uh, what's it called, the uh, mesh fence, or what's it called? These, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, barbed wire, wire barbed wire fence, essentially to not cut yourself. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was just, and if it was a program, you wouldn't do that, right? <laughs> yeah, and but that that was their reality, right? And and yeah. it was just that this incense or or in this what has happened in your country and nobody's doing anything and it's crazy and oh, my goodness uh, we're going to be assassinated all in our we're going to be killed all in our beds with the next uh, terrorist bombing and so on. Just this completely different reality than um you know and nobody's talking about this that's the worst thing none of them in mainstream media are talking about this they're 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 they're, they're keeping it under wraps there's like it's not a story it's not a story <laughs> it did actually happen that's why they're not talking about it yeah they also have very few articles about the easter bunny mm. um yeah <laughs> i mean right um and it, and and the, the fact that it stigmatized knowledge for certain people means like they, they feel like they're in on the on the truth of something and they're in this circle that really understands the situation. But I mean, I remember, I remember talking to, you know, uh, PhD students in rhetoric can be skew very left. Right. And there was one who shared this art, this one from slate or from these other uh, magazines about, Oh, this person claims to be pro-life, but then he met, invested in companies that aren't specifically pro-life <laughs> and you're just like yeah. uh so there's this one fringe group out there that's calling itself a pro-life hedge fund 
And so anything that doesn't invest in that one specifically are not specifically pro-life. That's their argument. And you're helping them make their argument. Are you crazy? Yeah. <laughs> what? yeah. <laughs> this this, do, this yeah. outrage machines, right? That's just yeah. um, a lot of good clicks. You know, he shared it. Right. Right. I know. And um, um, Trump doesn't have a gold toilet, never did. And um, the and the Bush family was not really tied to Nazis. Mm. Uh, but it's we want that stuff to be true. And, and I think, I mean, I, I also noticed um, in 2016 that what, what other people said, which was that for the most part with, you know, people who tended to vote democratic, they would catch, someone would catch pretty fast. Actually, this is a satire site or this was, um, you know, not true. I ended up having to abandon um, mother Jones because mm if you click on the link, sometimes it, that's not, the links didn't really support. And I, I don't have the time to click on every link. <laughs> so, uh, but I've, I found it useful to talk to students about that and about, you know, giving them lists of here, here are some sites that um, I disagree with a lot of them, but their facts are going to be right. And maybe they're going to put a hard spin on the facts, but at least those will be the facts. And, um, and so these are good places to try to get, to understand, you know, what the, what the opposition view is. And then you've got, you know, places like Gutemacher that are, um, are just going to have really, really good uh, data, even when it undermines the arguments they're trying to make. Right. That's, uh, and that's again, this, this fairness, right? And mm -hmm. because otherwise it really becomes a question, not of truth, but of power, right? That's, that's, mm -hmm. the, that's, that's the thing. Like if you don't feel like there's something, and this is again, the, the liberal democracy, uh, you know, very often what's called liberal democracy will have rights and there'll be rights for everyone, even the ones I totally oppose, uh, will have mm -hmm. these things that are worthy of defending in themselves, uh, whether or not they lead to the specific outcome that I support, right? The, the, the means are more worth than ends, really. Uh, it's kind of, kind of the argument for it. Yeah, because so it's it's truth as an aspiration rather than achievement. Right. Um, and then there's uh, the I, the idea of self criticism, that, mm -hmm. uh, and this is a hard one uh, because it's uh, or self skepticism that um, you know that we try to uh, acknowledge the logical premises and consequences of what we're arguing, enter the conversation willing to be wrong, willing to admit the limits of our own knowledge willing to reconsider our evidence, sources, and premises. Uh, and we and increasingly in American culture, that's just not something that's rewarded. It's a, seen as weakness. A, yeah. a politician says, I, I'm, I'm, I was wrong and I'm sorry. Um, unless it's kind of like a forced mea culpa after like a pylon. <laughs> yeah. Someone who does that voluntarily without having first been uh, pressured to like you apologize or you resign. Yeah. Uh, someone who just does that voluntarily, even like notices it themselves, uh, publishes it themselves, um, that's like asking for trouble that's, and yeah. and also disappointing your supporters. Well, one thing we haven't talked about that I, I didn't really get to pursue as much as I'd like to in either the books on demagoguery is toxic masculinity and how that plays into all of this. Because um, in toxic masculinity, you're strong or weak. Um, you're decisive or you're clueless 
And so if, if you are saying, I think this is our best choice, I've looked at the data and it, it seems pretty good, that's seen as feminine or worse, it's seen as sort of impaired masculinity. And so uh, that really inhibits our ability to have reasonable discussions about things. And I think also that there's some stuff, we don't have to approach everything that way. There's some things about which I'm, I'm irrational and I'm not gonna listen to you know, contradictory data. And that's fine. Um, but as long as I'm going to acknowledge, yeah, this, here's, here are some beliefs I have, and they amount to religious beliefs, and that's that. But when you treat everything, this goes back to the quote you gave a long time ago, when you treat everything as, um, in, in, a, in a very odd sort of religious way, you end up with multiple gods. Mm, right. You end up worshiping Trump as God. Right. <laughs> and he's not. Um, or Obama as God or whatever, you know, mm-hmm. but you, but or you worship capitalism or you worship, you know, something. So this Messiah, you know, uh, you know this multiple messiahs coming, right? For, yeah. yeah. Um, and so I think that's also useful to keep in mind is that, that um, we all have irrational beliefs, but let's try to acknowledge that they're rational and keep them in certain areas. And then there are other things that, we um, don't have, we, we don't have to have a beliefs on everything, which is something I think, you know, people don't necessarily understand that, yeah, you don't have to, I don't have time to look into some issues. And so mm. I'm going to try not to have strong opinions on those issues because I, I can't look into them. And we don't have to have strong opinions on everything. Mm, right. And the, the last one you talk about also is uh, Stacy's, where it's like, we need to kind of focus on, okay, well, we're going to talk about now the fact of this thing and you're not going to talk about uh, we're going to say okay did or did this not happen not whether or not the person who says that is terrible right <laughs> that's the go the going <laughs> like because then you go on to the ad hominem like the yeah. ad hominem attack right that that sometimes these things for people for, for people uh, are just so mixed in their minds sometimes they don't necessarily yeah. intentionally do these leaps right from from uh uh uh, immigration is bad to you you're killing babies <laughs> yeah uh, or yeah. you're on the other side right like where it's you know that uh, uh oh you you just you rich people just wanted people who want others to starve to death uh no actually what we're talking about here was whether or not minimum wage is a good idea for you know yeah. right <laughs> yeah. in and this the, particular and the market is, at least in american politics is which party is better Right. And because it's a zero sum, if I can show that your party is bad, then I've shown my party is better, and then and therefore my policy must be good. Instead of arguing about the policies, and and what we lose then is I was really surprised um, to discover. Uh, I went to this really cool um, conference that's put on by the Texas Tribune, and it was, and listening to people with wildly different political affiliations agreeing on bail reform. Mm. Um, and agreeing that the way we do bail now is really destructive and doesn't achieve what we're trying to achieve and, and actually enhances criminality and all sorts of things. And, and, I, you know, and, and so if we think about politics as a zero sum, then we can't see that there are these places where, where people can agree and, and we could work together toward bail reform, regardless of their stance on immigration or abortion or, you know, gay marriage or whatever, mm-hmm. um, we, we work on this thing together. And if we're in a culture of demagoguery, then you're not supposed to work with the opposition at all. And so then you lose all those, all those things. Because then it, compromise becomes treason. Right. 
right because you're because you're trucking with the devil um yeah, yeah exactly. and also any any um political success on their part uh is a you you want to do as much harm to them as possible so that and again we're back to vladimir's choice that um or what got me interested in this in the first place was what Thucydides says about uh, what happened in Greece, where where people would, um, if you wanted to do down some politician, you'd put them in charge of a an expedition that was destined to fail. So you're willing to kill people to have people die, mm-hmm. um, and all those resources just to get that person, and um, and you're willing to hurt Athens as long as it helps your party. And I, I think that's I think that's where the United States is right now. Yeah, that uh, and we can, we can. Uh, well, as some people talked about, that we don't care if uh, Vladimir Putin controls the democracy as long as the left loses, right? Uh, yeah. Or you know, as uh, some people would say, we don't care if American troops are being killed other places as long as American capitalism isn't able to spread. Like some would say, right? So there well, were people cheering for, you know, like. Um, read like a far left uh, magazine that was cheering, hoping that uh, there was a war against Iran and that Iran won. And then after Iranian oh. nationalism, it would have ev- inevitably ev- evolved to communism. <laughs> yeah. God, I, I haven't heard from those people in 40 years. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. The, the, or, or I think, you know, one example would be that, Obama very shrewdly, when he put forward um, health insurance, did Romney care. So this is something that a Republican had promoted. Right. And again, and, from Heritage, uh, the Heritage Foundation was the first ones yeah. to to uh, write the blueprint for it. Yeah, mm-hmm. and um, and it you know it didn't it didn't work because Republicans didn't want Democrats to have a win on um, on health care. But had Romney won, I think. And and put he would have put in similar healthcare, and I think Democrats would have fought it. I'm, I think we're in that that kind of situation, and that's really really unfortunate. 